Okay, um, I want to start off with a passage uh, just before I mention it. Um, the, the, the first line is, is a line that it's one of those few scriptures where I don't think I've ever read this line and not been kind of captured by it, arrested by it, um, challenged to, 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 to think about the urgency and the, and the heart with which Paul the Apostle, who's writing this particular phrase, the, the urgency with, with which he is appealing to his readers. It is, it is part of the Bible, part of, of what we believe is the inspired word of God. And so I can't encourage you enough to pay attention to, well, everything, but this first line, Ephesians 4 verse 1. This is Paul writing, and we've got the English translation and the, and the New Living Translation. It says, therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord. So Paul is in prison, and he's, he's fortunate enough to still be able to write to the Christians in the city of Ephesus. I, therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. I beg you to live a life worthy of your calling. And none of you look particularly impacted by that statement. So I'm just gonna try and help you catch up with the burden and the urgency that I feel when I read Paul's words. I imagine someone who's been willing to lay his life down, literally. I mean, he's been, he's been beaten up, stoned, left for dead, not stoned like, like the nice type. I mean, I mean like, like badly, right? Shipwrecked multiple times. And he has consistently considered the cause of Christ like just irrationally more significant than his own personal comfort and convenience. And, and it's with this same, listen, he's got no skin in the game. Like, like for Paul, it's do it, don't do it. They're not making him rich. He's not a televangelist. He is, he's in prison. He's saying, guys, I beg you, is, what, is the, the term that the, the translators of the New Living Translation use. Most other versions, like the New International Version, King James, uh, ESV, etc., uses the word urge. I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling. What I wanna look at today is how to live a life, or at least some principles that will help us to live a life that is worthy of our calling. But don't miss the next part of that sentence. For you have been called by God. Not by your grandmother, not by your favorite aunt or uncle, your mother, your father, your best friend, no, no, there is a life that you have been called to by the creator of the universe. The person who was willing to come down, the God who was willing to come down in the form of a man and die on a cross. The God who was willing to come and live a life as an example of, of that it is actually possible to live a life that matters. That, that, he, that he's able to be firm and secure and not easily influenced by, by people and their, and their motives and agendas for you, and yet so present and compassionate and kind and, and willing to make a difference that lasts for eternity. We have been called by God, and we are challenged, urged, begged to live a life worthy of our calling. That's just verse one. Verse two goes on to say, so it's kind of like a therefore, this is how we do this, always, be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Remember, he's speaking to Christians. Making allowance for each other's faults. He's speaking to Christians. 
because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. Now, others are saying, hey, you're gonna spend eternity together, so you might as well get along this side of eternity. Be humble, be gentle, put up with one another, be gracious towards one another's faults because of your love. Jesus, in, in that very famous passage where just before he is arrested and then falsely accused, convicted, and crucified, takes off um, uh, his outer garment, picks up a towel, and washes his disciples' feet, which, which at that stage was the, the most humble act of servanthood that one person could do for another. And it was in that, in that setting that he said to his disciples, I'm giving you a new commandment. Now, the old commandment was, Love one another as you want to be loved. Or love one another you know, as, as, as you kind of think they deserve. He's saying, no, no, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. In other words, way beyond what you deserve or what they deserve. Not when it's convenient, not when it's comfortable. No, no, love one another as I have loved you. This is the person speaking who, by the way, when he's on a cross, in physical, literal, actual pain, can look down and say, Father, forgive them because they don't actually know what they're doing. Like he wasn't all talk, he wasn't all hype. He lived this example and he's challenging. He, he, through Paul, is challenging his followers, his believers, to actually be like him. That's why I, I love the three phrases that we keep coming back to of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, because it is possible to be, actually become more and more like Jesus and to do what Jesus would do. He modeled this life for us goes on in verse 11 to say, now these are the gifts that uh, Christ gave to the church, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people. This is the part that's important. To do his work. So again, there is a purpose. You have a calling. To do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. When we hurt the church, which isn't a building, it's people. We are hurting the body of Christ. When we are in, in, our, in our most uh, self-deceptive, noblest, self-righteousness, thinking that we're okay in, in being quick to throw judgment and condemnation and shade at other people. We need to remember, this is the body of Christ. And he doesn't call us to love one another if we're perfect. Because that, that has never happened, just so you know. And if you think that you're surrounded by a bunch of close to perfect people, you haven't been around long enough or you haven't gotten involved enough. I mean that deadly seriously. Now that doesn't excuse, I wanna be clear, that'll never excuse abuse, uh, malpractice in leadership, heresy, it doesn't excuse that stuff. But, but for us to be, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to pursue the, the, the Holy Spirit's purposes, there has to be a willingness to love one another. Look at how he goes on to say, that as each part does its own special work, which means we all have a part to play. As we all do our own special work, it helps the other parts to grow. And by the way, that's the goal, to grow, to mature. So that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. That, that's not my goal, that's not my mission statement, that's the Bible. It's not just to get more bums on seats, more, more rands in the bank, more, more people serving in different areas, although, although all of that makes, can make a difference if done for the right reasons, with the right motive, and because 
I'm actually responding to God. But the, the goal is not just to increase our metrics, the goal is to increase maturity. And I think that a byproduct of increasing maturity is that we will reach more people. We will love more people, we will serve more people, we will make a greater impact in the community. We will, we will be inspired and courageous and bold and faithful as we engage in projects that are intimidating and that you don't feel like you have all the resources for. You will be motivated and inspired and empowered to persevere in relationships that are difficult. We will make a difference if we are growing and full of love. So, so it's not a case of should, should the church be big, should the church be small? No, no, the church should be healthy and growing and full of love and, and the byproduct of that Generally speaking, depending on the season, I think is going to be fruit in different ways. So, so where I think we get ourselves into trouble is because we are better educated. There's a whole, that's a whole other story of chronolo chronological snobbery. But, but we do have more access, let's put it that way, to, to information, to leadership skills than ever before. And so the, the reality is that you can grow a church without Jesus. Cults grow. Nonprofits grow. So, so we're not, but you see what happens is, is then we can be tempted to throw the baby out of the bathwater and think, okay, well, well growth and, metric, and all these things are, no, 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 and leadership doesn't, no, it just means that there's a challenge to lead well and to lead with love and to serve with love. And if we're gonna pursue growth, let it be motivated by love and so that we are genuinely, genuinely, genuinely motivated by wanting to help more people find freedom and wholeness and health and relationships restored, and identity and security restored in God, and purpose restored. If that is our motive, well then of course we're gonna wanna lead to the best of our ability. We're gonna wanna be as diligent as possible, and we're all gonna want to contribute our part at work, at home, at school, at church. We're gonna want to make a difference. All right, so three things that I wanna look at that I think will help us to live a life worthy of our calling, because we are called by God, is to be faithful, humble, and united. Faithful, humble, and united. Now, each of these are a message on their own. In fact, each of them are a series on their own. I realize this. So, so stick with me as I do my best to fly through this. Under faithful, I wanna look at just a couple of ideas, which is that of being urgent, intentional, diligent, courageous, and accountable. When we are faithful, there will be an urgency, there will be an intentionality, there will be a diligence, like an excellence, we're, we're trying hard, there'll be courage, and we will realize that we're gonna give an account one day, and by the way, there's something healthy about giving an account today. Matthew 25, verse 14, is, is a significant parable that's worth going to read slowly and in different translations when you have your own uh, space and time. But in 25, verse 14, it says, again, this is Jesus speaking, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants, and he trusted his money to them while he was gone. Verse 15, in the NIV says, to one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. That really, really matters. It's amazing how often we forget that idea and that principle when we, when we want to judge. When we either wanna judge ourselves and, and, and giving to discouragement because we're comparing to others or when we wanna judge others because we're comparing them to how amazing we are, which we're not. But we're also not always as bad as what we think we are when we compare ourselves to others. According to his ability, 
Then he went on his journey. So first idea here is that of urgency. As you go on to read that story, there's no time to waste. They didn't wait for perfect circumstances. They didn't first go to a bunch of seminars and download every TED talk they could. Verse 16 says that the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put the money to work and gained five bags more. There was an urgency. I, I honestly think that the danger towards Western Christianity is wanting to wait until we know enough, feel, feel competent enough, can explain everything. We, we can kind of guarantee that what we're gonna step out in faith to do is guaranteed to work, which means that we don't actually need faith. It's all about my own ability and, and you know, lining everything up. Instead of there being an urgency saying, okay, God, I'm gonna trust you to, to grow me as I go along. So grow me as I go. Direct a moving ship. Increase my capacity for failure. I don't know about you, I didn't grow up in church where we were encouraged to fail. But then I started reading the Bible. Do you know how much failure there is in the Bible? But you, you only fail when you're willing to try. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. There is an urgency, there's a focus, there's not waiting for everything to be lined up nicely. Another idea is that of being intentional. The first two servants didn't drift, they were deliberate. And again, I think sometimes we wait for the, for the, the planets to align, for, for the archangel Gabriel to descend on a white fluffy cloud and whisper to us that we need to like, just be a little bit more gracious at work or, or, or contribute our gift in our local church or whatever the case is, where, where actually the, we have to decide. We don't drift towards maturity. We decide to take steps that are gonna lead towards maturity. The idea of being diligent is just simply being faithful. Each bag, now, now different translations will refer to bags of gold, bags of silver. If you, if you have any of the older trans, English translations, it'll refer to the parable of the talents. A talent or the bags of gold or silver that the different translations refer to is simply equal to. So one bag or one talent is equal to 20 years wages at minimum wage. So it's a fair chunk. So even for the guy who thought like, why do you get five and you got two and I've only got like one? Hey, it's 20 years wages. It's not chump change, okay? But again, it was according to their ability. If you had a billion rand that you were going to try and give to people to steward over the next 10 years, you're probably gonna care that they have some ability. You're gonna give according to the, the measure of their ability, right? But what this also means is that the guy that was given five bags effectively was given 100 years worth of wages. So more than enough to just chill out. More than enough <laughs> to make a good life for himself. Some of us have been given enough to live a comfortable, convenient life. But he was diligent. He went and he doubled it. He brought back an, an, an additional 100 years worth of wages. He didn't, he didn't take the excess as an excuse to just live a lazy, lavish life. The man with the two bags had 40 years of wages, and with the one, he had at least 20 years of wages. To be diligent is simply to do the best we can with what we have. Yeah. That's all it is. That's what excellence is. That's what, that's what diligence is. It's doing the best we can and, and making corrections as we go along. If you have even an ounce of perfectionism in you, this sounds like heresy to you. 
because you want to wait until, I get it, you want to wait until you're guaranteed a, a, a success story. And it's, it's no longer in the New Living Translation, but in the Living Bible, which is kind of the, the precursor to the New Living Translation, as more of a paraphrase than a translation, th- there was this verse in the Old Testament where it said that a farmer who waits for perfect circumstances will never do anything. Let's stop waiting for perfect, let's just do the best that we can. Diligence may seem boring or inconvenient in the short term, but it's richly and deeply satisfying in the long term. Another idea is that of being courageous. Verse 18 says that the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, if you don't understand the context of the story or, or maybe have, have heard a teaching or been able to read any kind of you know, a commentary on this, you might just think, well, like, is that the worst thing that could happen? I mean, he gave him back what he'd given to him. He hadn't lost anything. But you read the, 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 the disappointment, the frustration, the, the attitude of the master when he returns and he finds out that, the, that the, he called the servant lazy and wicked. In the message paraphrase by Eugene Peterson, he says, if you, like, why, why did you do less than the least? You could have at least just put it into the bank to earn. So in other words, he wasn't willing to do anything, but some have suggested that that, that attitude is hinted at in the one statement where the, where the servant comes back with the money that he was given. He didn't lose anything, but he didn't gain anything. He says, I, I knew that you were a hard man, expecting things that, that you didn't sow. Now, again, if you just read that, for many years, I, I would read that passage and think, like, sure, is God hectic? Because this is referring to God. Is he, is he unfair? Is he harsh? Does he expect things that he hasn't? And if you read the rest of Scripture, the answer is no. That's not who he is at all. What it does reflect, however, is the, the paradigm, the mindset of that servant. See, that servant interpreted. He, he, so, so his laziness or his fear was a reflection of his view of God. It wasn't an accurate view. And so his view of God and his fear of disappointing him, if that is what it was, was because of an incorrect view of the heart of God. I'll never forget hearing the statement years ago how the opposite of fear is not faith, it's love. Because love drives out all fear, is what 1 John 4 verse 18 says. In fact, that passage, 1 John 4 verse 18, goes on to, to explain that, that, that fear is because of an, basically an unhealthy expectation of punishment. I'm saying that this servant had an unhealthy view of God and an unhealthy fear probably of punishment, and so he wasn't willing to try, and that's why I'm saying that this requires courage. But courage is only possible because of love. So, so we're only going to diminish the fear or be able to do it in spite of the fear as we increase in our relationship with God. As we, as we are encouraged by how much God loves us and how God is actually okay with us failing or making mistakes, not, not doing it perfectly. It's only to that extent that we'll have the courage to say, okay, God, whew, I could lose 20 years of wages, but I'm gonna give it my best shot. Think about this for a moment. If you are familiar with the Bible, what do you think reflects the heart of God more? Is he gonna be happier with someone that was willing to do his best and maybe lost it all? Or someone that wasn't willing to try anything and buried it all and just gave him back what he'd given to him? My, my honest conviction 
in terms of how the Bible describes God is that he would far rather someone be willing to try and trust him. Try and say, God, if I make a mess, please will you clean it up? God, even if I hurt people unintentionally, please show me and help me to apologize and to do better. And God, if I hurt people intentionally because I'm being a jerk, show me and help me to apologize and repent and take ownership and try again. But there's no way in God's kingdom for us to do everything perfectly. Lastly, there is accountable. If we look at being faithful, we see towards the end of the story, Matthew 25, verse 14, that after a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. And I'm just telling you that one day we are all gonna stand before God. The Bible tells us that there are two judgments. One is what we did with his son. That determines where we spend eternity. And the other is what we did with our lives. And that reflects our relationship with him, our love for him, our trust for him, our obedience, our, our faithfulness. And, and this sounds so weird to me because I've never wanted to be motivated by this, but the Bible paints a picture of you actually being rewarded. Although interestingly, the reward is greater responsibility, which could mess with your mind. Because all we think of in terms of responsibility is living in a fallen world and responsibility being a pain in the butt. But actually, the more we want to partner with God, the more we want to partner with God. So we're called to be faithful, which is to live with a sense of urgency, intentionality, diligence, courage, and accountability. Second is humility. For us to live a life worthy of our calling, there has to actually be a genuine conviction and commitment to growing in humility. The irony, of course, is when you think you're humble, you probably still have some work to do. <laughs> so, so let me give you a couple of examples of what may reflect humility. Humility isn't just a feeling, by the way. Humility isn't, isn't it's certainly not thinking lowly of yourself. It's just valuing others more than just my own self-centeredness. But it's not, it's not, it's not insecurity. It's not, it's not having a worm mentality. I have to look up to see the ground. It, that's, that's, that's not what humility is. Just three quick examples that I want to share is that of submission, reflection, and confession. There's very little that will cause us. Uh, by the way, guys, being humble, man, it's painful. It's like, it's like someone's like punching in the gut. It's like, what do you mean I have to just submit? I don't like that per person or that idea or that. I'm not even sure I agree with them. But it's not immoral. It's like, no, uh, wait, wait, what do you mean? Like, you know, for those of you who know what it's like, if you're a teenager, to have to submit to certain things with your parents. I'm not, again, I'm not talking about abuse or immorality, right? In that case, the rule of God supersedes the rule of man or the rule of your parents. But yes, man, when you don't like it, when you don't agree with it, when you think, I can work when I go to bed at three o'clock in the morning. I'm 12 already. <laughs> it is ugh, like humbling to have to ugh, submit to, you know, your parents. Anyway, maybe you're married and you're, and you're actually accountable on, on your spending. And it's like, I don't want to have to tell someone else how I spend. Why can't I just spend my money? Well, you know, you kind of won and you, know, you <laughs> join together. It has implications. Maybe, maybe that's a healthy thing to be accountable. And, and, and that might sometimes require, by the way, mutual submission. That passage in Ephesians 5 about husbands and wives, it starts off with submit to one another yeah. out of reverence for Christ. Yeah. So I'm just saying, like, uh, what do you mean you don't, you're not comfortable with me buying that thing? I'm like, nah. 
you know you can have a grown-up tantrum, right? It's just, it's just a little bit more controlled, and it's a little bit more internal, and might be passive-aggressive, and, and all the rest, but anyway, submission, you know. So, 1 Peter 5, verse 5 says, in the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. In the NIV, it actually says, submit to your elders. That's got a whole bunch of complications and, and implications, so that's not the main point I want to focus on. And all of you, dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. So it's in the context of humility in your relationships with one another that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's amazing how you can be right and be so wrong. So you can be right in your opinion, conviction, interpretation, but the way that you go about trying to prove your rightness can be so wrong. He's saying in the context of one another ring, dress yourselves with humility as you relate to one another. Hey, because God. God. It's God who opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now again, you have to figure out what is true humility versus a sentimentalized secular version of humility. What is true humility? Humility ultimately is, God, you're number one. If you, if you say it, I want to help me to obey it. Like, like I'm, your ways are not my ways, your thoughts are not my thoughts, help me to obey you. That's, that, that's the essence of humility. It's not, it's not about being easily manipulated and controlled and dominated. No, no, that's, that's different. But to be truly humble, man, can I encourage you God gives grace to those who are truly humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and at the right time, at, I don't know when the right time is, but at the right time, He will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares. I mean, think about this. He's talking about conflict, right? You don't need humility and submitting to one another when everything's just peach and you all agree. You don't ever need submission when you all agree. You only need it when you don't agree, okay? In that context, he's saying, give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Yo, I don't feel like he cares about this. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. He cares for you. Then, as though to drive the point home a little bit deeper, again, remember the context that we're talking about, relationships, unity, humility, submission. This is Peter writing. He says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Is he saying that in the context of relationships and humility and submission? I think he is. If he can't get you to reject your salvation, surely he's got like a thousand other ways to keep us away from God and his purposes. And division is one of them. Self-righteousness is one of them. Just pure distraction, but all the, listen, they're a bunch. I'm not going to give him too much credit right now. I'm just saying that, that's, that in this context, stay alert because you actually do have an enemy that is prowling around. Submission, literally, the word sub means under, right? Submission is to be under God's mission. Now, again, that, uh, you, you'll notice I'm trying to emphasize the fact that it's God's mission. I'm not, I can't tell you that you have to be submitted to me and my mission, and, and I'm abusing that. I, yes, I do think that there's absolutely a healthy, I just think we're living in a, in a cultural moment where so much of leadership is abused. So I, I'm very mindful of that. Having said that, I think that there is a context that in a healthy scenario, 
where everyone's trying to grow and love God and, and hear Him and direct people to Him and obey Him, then absolutely, there is a huge need for submission, for being under God's mission. So I'm saying, as long as whoever it is that you're needing to submit to is under God's mission, or isn't at least anti again, I want to be careful. Do you know how hard it is for me, my personality? I want to give you all the counter possibilities, because if I was just sitting out there, yeah, but what about, and what about, and what about? So, so you might, if, you're, if you're a teenager, you might be thinking, well, my parents aren't submitted to God's mission. <sighs> okay, but actually, they are. There, there is a delegated level of appropriate authority and responsibility, and again, that's why I'd say, unless they are leading you into, unless they're trying to get you to sin, unless they're trying to get you to go against God's or anything else, if it's not sinful or criminal, then for the most part, yes. It's okay, so suck it up and submit. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? <laughs> this is such great news. Such great news. All right, reflection. So we talk about submission. Reflection is simply having an attitude that is regularly asking God, Lord, is there anything you want to point out? How's my heart? How are my motives? I mean, I think it's really healthy to do this on a daily basis, but if, but if not, then at least a weekly basis. Remember when Jesus taught his disciples to pray the model, the principles that he gave was, you know, your kingdom come, you will be done on earth as it is in heaven, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. How do I know what I'm asking God to forgive if I'm not reflecting? And asking God to point stuff out. Carrie Neuf says the following, that the most difficult test of character is not failure, it's success. It's easy to be humble when you're failing. It's much harder when things go well. In other words, just keep reflecting. God, everything's going amazing right, right now. Like, is that okay? Like, like, you know. God, everything's going terrible right now. Is there anything that I need? Anyway. And then third, the last one in that section is just confession. Personally, I'm not sure if there's anything more humbling than confessing. Yeah, yeah, I confess to God all the time. Yeah, I mean, that's good. But if you've ever struggled with a recurring confession, then you know exactly what I mean when I say it just doesn't feel different after a while. And then you feel like you fall again, and you fall again, and you fall again. And if you've been in that situation and you've ever taken the risk of actually telling another person, so confessing to another person, you can't explain it, I can't explain it, but something's different. It's like it's in the air, it's, it's out in the open, it's in the light. Whereas when I'm just keeping my personal confession to me and God, it's amazing how much room the enemy has to just keep trying to bring up things and, and, and take an element of truth and blow it out of proportion and discourage you. The book of James talks about confessing to one another. Some have, have said it this way. We confess to God to find forgiveness, but we confess to one another to find healing. And there is something, there's something that takes place when, when we actually take the risk, and it's a, it's a risk. To be vulnerable means I'm giving you something that you can hold against me. I'm giving you something that you can hurt me with. So don't do that with everyone. Don't do that with just anyone. Like, like this takes time. You test the waters. You share things that are a little bit more sensible, vulnerable. You see how people, how that person copes with it. But confession, let me put it to you this way. 
Myself and two very close friends where we've formed trust over many, many years, we will literally send each other a message every Friday confessing something good from the week, something bad from the week, something that we want to pray for. I've just, just come away from a few days with our national leaders. We've been planning some stuff. And, and at each of our time together, we spend time confessing. What, what is one way that God could take you out of the ministry right now? Right now, we, we, we've, we've got a, we are, because we live in different parts of the country, we are planning, not planning, we, like it's planned. We've got, thanks Ivan to his personality, we have a calendar invite for the second Thursday of every month. So once a month, we're going to have a Zoom meeting where, we, where it's just confession. I have another retired pastor who I love and appreciate deeply, who just over the last several years has created such a safe place to just confess, be real. It's humbling. It's scary. You don't know what they're going to do with it. But it's freeing. You'll be amazed if you're battling with a recurring. And by the way, it doesn't have to be some hardcore sin. It could just be, it could just be that, you're, that you're struggling in a, in a healthy habit. It could be that you're really wrestling over distraction. Anytime you've got free time, you just feel like you're, you're allowing yourself to go down roads that just aren't life-giving. It, but, but, but it is an accountable life. It's... Anyway, lastly, okay, faithfulness, I'll be quick with this, faithfulness, humility, and at last is to be united. Again, going back to our starting passage, Carol, you can come on up. Ephesians 4 verse 1 says, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to live or to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort. Look at this line. Make every effort. You can get so much right, but if you get this wrong, I would say that the rest is almost pointless. It's useless. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. Binding yourselves together with peace. Now, I cannot tell you how strongly I feel about this. I mean, initially, for, for weeks, as I was thinking about this particular week, all I wanted to do was actually just focus on this thing of unity because unity is probably my single greatest burden at the moment. Just because I think that the enemy can, can cause division, and there's, there's, there's no lack of ammunition. We're human beings. We make mistakes. We offend. We're insensitive. We're too busy. We're distracted. We don't give enough attention. Sometimes we give too much attention. It's not hard. To, to, just, to just breathe onto the embers of disunity. It's not hard to, to breathe onto the embers of offense. So when he talks about peace, the, the point that, that I want to make it, you'll see a bunch of them on the screen behind me in a moment, is to reject false peace. This might surprise you, but I have literally spoken to our staff about this. I have literally used these words. This will get you fired. You can actually get so much, like even moral stuff wrong. If, you, if you're humble, we'll, we'll walk with you. But if you're gonna reject, for, if you're gonna reject real peace, if you're, going to, if you're gonna hide animosity, bitterness, you're not going to address it, but you're gonna talk about the person or to the person, it will cause division and nothing will hurt this church more than division. We are ruthlessly committed to unity. And, and just so you know, I mean that deeply seriously. No one, myself included, 
can, can stay in a position of leadership, or see, in fact, even on a team, if they are going to allow conflict to go unresolved, and, but, but it just stews. Guys, false peace is from the devil. You can, you can name it whatever you want to, you can, you can paint it with whatever brush you like. Yeah, yeah, but I don't wanna cause trouble. No, no, crap. You are scared, you don't wanna be misunderstood, or you don't wanna cause offense, or you don't wanna get into a fight, that's fine, but that's not real peace. No, no, we need to have tough conversations. And you know what tough conversations are? Tough. They're hard. They're uncomfortable. There is risk and fear involved. And if that person doesn't respond correctly, that's between them and God. Reject false peace. If you're married and you've been living with this passive aggression for years and, and you never really you know, address issues properly or with your kids, you, know, you just kind of allow things just to kind of, kind of get buried under the carpet, you are destroying your family. You are destroying your marriage. This is me toned down when it comes to this issue. I have a godly, I think, I think, it's a, I think so, I think it's a godly passion, urgency to fight back against the enemy when it comes to things like disunity, bitterness, unforgiveness. Just ignore, now yes, you have to pick your battles. Don't, please, don't go and have a, a big, you know, sit down because someone didn't look at you properly. Like, pick your battles, but reject false peace. Be patient and gentle. I've got to ask myself often, there are other passages that use the word tender or tender-hearted. If I am addressing something, if I'm having difficult conversations, or, or even in my humor, am I, am I gentle? Am I patient? Am I, am I tender-hearted? Or, am I, or am I, do I keep excusing aggressive, bullying behavior because I just feel strongly about the thing or because that's just my personality. We need to be patient and gentle. I want to emphasize this next point. We don't have to agree to accept someone. Now, you might need to think about that for a moment. The best example I can give is that if you are, if you're a parent here, there is no way that you and your kids agree on everything. If so, you're in huge trouble. You're creating monsters, or you're a monster. But, but you, there's no way that as you are progressing with them and as you're maturing that you guys are gonna agree on everything. But you better accept them. You love them, you accept them, even though you don't agree. Yeah, yeah, well, that's family. Well, we are the family of God. We are His body. What happens when a part of your body rejects the rest of the body? It gets cut off or falls off, becomes infested, infected. Someone the other day that I know had to have um, a huge chunk of their foot cut away because they just couldn't get the, the, the infection under control. It's affecting the rest of the body. Yeah, but it's, like in terms of real estate, it's a very small part of the whole body. It's a large body, okay, it's, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a like, but, but it affects the whole body. I cut about this much off of the tip of my index finger when I was two years old. It's affected my whole body. I was right-handed, became a forced left-hander. It's affected the way that my brain computes and programs things. It affects the difference between my, my fine motor skills and my gross motor skills. It is, a t it's so, it is so small, such a small piece. So don't believe the lie that your animosity, your bitterness doesn't have an effect. 
or that you have to agree. No, no. We can, we can actually, st let's start with accepting one another, loving one another, and then, and then from there. So from a place of unity, let's talk. So again, have the, have the tough conversations. But sometimes I think we make an idol out of agreement instead of a priority out of unity. Again, the exceptions of, of flat-out heresy and abuse, there are no excuses for that. And lastly, I think, yes. Lastly, we're there, guys, we're there. <laughs> Deep breath. Forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. At the end of that chapter that we've been looking at in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. When I refuse to forgive someone else, there's a very good chance that I'm not living in a revelation of what I've been forgiven of. It is very hard to remain self-righteous when I realize just how much God has had to forgive me of. It's not a magic trick, it's not sentimental, it's not a feeling, it's a decision. But I'm telling you that forgiven people forgive. And none of this, just so you know, none of this is sentimental, none of this is trite, most of my world is other Christians and other Christian leaders. So when I talk about having to forgive and, and there being disagreements, I'm talking about with other Christians and other Christian leaders. Let's not be naive. We are all human beings. And we have to work through our differences. I beg you to live a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. So decide, don't drift, decide to be faithful. Commit to humility and fight for unity. Forgiven people, forgive. Come on, stand with me. Let me pray for us. And then we will release you. Father, thank you that there's nothing that you're calling us to that is not worth it. It is, it is worth the calling. It is worth eternity. Your cause and your kingdom are so much more significant than our own personal comfort and convenience, our emotions, our how we feel from day to day. Not, not that they aren't important, but they're not the most important thing. God, help us to see what matters most. God, would you help us to be faithful with the gifts, the talents, the abilities, the opportunities, the experiences, the pain that you have given us. Help us to be good stewards of those things. Lord, that we'd be faithful with it at home, at work, at school, in your church. Help us to be the body of Christ. Help us to be your family. Help us to be your army. Help us to be your hands and feet as we are faithful. Help us to recognize any time we start rejecting humility and moving towards pride when we, when, when we find it quick and easy to, to make excuses for not submitting in the correct circumstances. Where we, where we find ourselves going from month to month without slowing down properly to reflect on, with you on where we're at and anything that you're wanting to point out or, or address in our lives. God, help us to be willing to confess, to take that incredibly risky step of actually being humble. And God, would you help us to fight for unity? Help us to reject false peace. Help us to have the tough conversations. Help us not to make an idol out of seeing everything perfectly eye to eye, but that we would, but that we would see the human being, that we would see 
a person that you have died for, that you love, that you value, that you care about. And that we would start from that place of love and value and dignity and then do everything we can to address the disagreements. But that, but that we'd even be okay with still loving and accepting a person even when we disagree. Look, we need wisdom in those situations, so I'll ask for plenty of that in Jesus' name. And God, if, if we're standing here today and if there is any person that we are holding unforgiveness towards, God, whatever that reason is, maybe, maybe there's someone that's coming to your mind immediately as we even just, just mention that topic. God, would you help us to consciously, deliberately, doggedly keep pursuing real forgiveness, that we would keep committing it to you, asking you to help us. Lord, we know that it's not always all at once or once and for all. It's often a process. We often have to keep releasing that person from the grudge. We often have to keep, as we think about it, rejecting the idea of, of, of revenge. We have to reject sentimentality and, and where people might tell us we have to trust that person again when trust will be broken. No, no, that's not the same thing. God, help us to forgive though. Help us to, help us to release them from hatred, from bitterness, from, from wishing them to hell. Help us to release them to you. God, help us to be faithful, humble, and united. And help us to lead lives that are worthy of your calling. In Jesus' name.